Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome to Independent Americans. Welcome to a very important episode 127. I'm your host, Paul Rykoff. Now, more than any other time, now is a time to stay vigilant. That's the sound of the Taliban taking over Kunduz Center in Afghanistan. It's August in America, the hottest time of the year. But things are even hotter in Afghanistan right now. Just one month from the 20th anniversary of 9-11, Afghanistan is in collapse. Yeah, back home, of course, there's plenty of important news. Governor Andrew Cuomo has resigned in disgrace. The Delta variant continues to rampage across America. And it looks like we may finally have a historic infrastructure bill coming out of Congress. And August is a time for summer vacations, for those last days of summer, and for the start of school. It's hard to keep track of everything flying around in the news and in all of our lives. But on this show, we will continue to bring you the most urgent, important issues you need to track on, even when so much else is going on. And I've been playing replay conversations for the last few weeks. But as events continue to unfold in Afghanistan, we had to put a stop on that summer break and dial up a very important conversation with an important, inspiring leader that you need to hear from. Matt Zeller is a father. He's a piano player. He's a Dodger fan. And he's the innovative, inspiring, tenacious co-founder of No One Left Behind. No One Left Behind is an organization that ensures the U.S. keeps its promises to care for those who've risked their lives for our country overseas. He's an adjunct fellow for the American Security Project. He's a fellow with the Truman Project. He's still a major in the U.S. Army Reserve's Individual Ready Reserves, and he's the author of Watches Without Time, an American soldier in Afghanistan. Matt Zeller is like a Harriet Tubman for Afghan and Iraqi interpreters. The men and women who stood up with me and countless other American troops overseas for the last 20 years. Afghan and Iraqi allies risked their lives, risked their families, risked everything to stand up and fight with us and often died fighting with us. They are true heroes, true helpers. And right now, in Afghanistan, they're being slaughtered. As the Taliban continues to rampage all across Afghanistan, they are hunting down and slaughtering our Afghan allies. As many as 20,000 of them and their families are right now, as I record this, being hunted, wounded, and slaughtered across Afghanistan. It's an urgent and infuriating situation that all Americans must understand, appreciate, and get involved in. And my friend Matt Zeller is going to join us to tell us why. Why this issue is so urgent. Why this is a moral imperative. Why this is a strategic military necessity. Why this is a moral gut check for all Americans. And why this is about so much more than just Afghanistan. Our response should be united. It should be bipartisan. 
and it should be immediate. And I've been outspoken about this. I think President Biden has been off to a great start on many issues, but not this one. This is a catastrophic, inexcusable, exacerbating failure unfolding right now. And it is the responsibility of the commander in chief to deal with it. Republican, Democrat, or independent like me, we should all be united in our focus on this issue, in our focus on saving our allies and ensuring that they are not left to die. This is a defining moment for the Biden presidency, and it's a defining moment for America. And Matt Zeller is here to break it down. He'll tell you a story you'll never forget. He'll lay out the situation in a way you haven't heard, and he'll give you a way to take action. If you're not angry, you're not paying attention. But being angry is not enough. We all need to take action now to ensure that more of our friends aren't left to die. So wherever you are, whoever you are, interrupt your summer for a couple of minutes to sit down and hear this powerful, important conversation and share it far and wide. It's another way that you can be a helper. Even in the dog days of summer, even when everything else is going on, we're all in this together. Here it is, our conversation with Matt Zeller. A really important example of why we all, especially now, must stay vigilant. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Ladies and gentlemen, independent Americans around the country and around the world, happy summer. We've been taking a break from new conversations, but there is a really important, urgent uh, story that is unfolding that I felt we had to come back for. Uh, and there's a man that we need to talk to right now because, uh, quite frankly, shit is unraveling in Afghanistan. There are urgent issues facing our communities on the homeland, and it's not off the radar. So this is one of those issues where I think we are uniquely positioned to bring you really important information, to bring you the five eyes, and to bring you an important and inspiring guest, uh, a man that's been a heroic leader, a guy that I hope gets a humanitarian award of some kind. Uh, you may have seen him on CNN and other places, um, but he's been pounding away below the radar for a very, very long time saving lives. And he took time away from saving lives right now to talk to us. He's a man I admire, I respect, and I just love uh, having as a friend. Uh, I think he's a truly great American. A time when we're talking about patriotism and that term has gotten hijacked. This is a guy who embodies the best of the values that this country represents. My friend, the great and powerful Matt Zeller. Welcome to Independent Americans, my friend. Thank you for having me, brother. It's an honor to be here. Um, so you listen to the show. You know the deal. Uh, I want to get into a lot of heavy issues um, that you are, I think, better positioned to talk about than anybody in America and maybe anybody in the world. Um, but before we get to that, where are you and, and how are you? I see behind you a drawing. I see a, a, a Giants football. I see a CNN Heroes Award, which is well-deserved. But where are you and, and how are you, man? I'm out. I'm good, brother. Uh, thanks for asking. I am in my home office in Oakton, Virginia. Uh, the Giants football is, uh, my dad got that for me during my deployment. He went to, to camp and uh, got the members of the team to sign it. Like Eli's on that, Plexico's on it. And that was the year that they had won the Super Bowl. Like they won the Super Bowl that, that January. And uh, our unit was a, was a New York Army National Guard unit. And um, we were combined with a bunch of folks from New England at Fort Riley, Kansas. And they actually had this MWR facility set up where they had uh, MPs down the middle. 
Because on one side, you had all the Giants fans. On the other side, you had all the Patriots fans. And uh, the amount of shit talking that was going on was epic. Uh, and then when David Tyree, my boy from Syracuse, caught that ball, I mean, that was, you know, that was pandemonium. That is that is amazing. Uh, it's 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 bittersweet that football is back because it means that summer is is winding down. Yeah. But um, you know maybe it's it's reflective of these times because you've been in the middle of a lot of conflict over the last couple of decades. Um, I want you to tell me, please, Matt. Uh, I don't know how we first met, but I started tracking your work. I felt like in the beginning of IABA, I was like a one man band. I was up on the hill, and I felt like when I first met you, you were that guy. You had found No One Left Behind, a co-founded No One Left Behind, really the first organization in the space helping our, our translators and our allies overseas. You were uh, an army captain. I think you're still, you said, a, a major in the reserves now. Um, but can you talk about how did you get to this point? How did you become, and you are now really the foremost voice for our allies, our interpreters in Afghanistan around the world. How'd you get to this point? How'd you get in this chair where now you're on CNN and you're literally screaming from the mountaintops as our friends are slaughtered? Well, simply put, Paul, I, I shouldn't be sitting here talking to you. The only reason I am is because my Afghan interpreter, my brother, a guy named Janice, saved my life in a battle on the 14th day of my war. So I served as an embedded combat advisor uh, in Ghazni, Afghanistan. I arrived in Afghanistan in April of 2008. And... Uh, on April 28th, it was a Monday, uh, my unit and I were out assessing an Afghan police outpost in this district called Waget's. Um, I'll never forget this, this place we went to because, uh, first of all, these Afghan cops hadn't seen an American in about a year. And uh, they hadn't been paid months. You know, nobody had, a there wasn't a regular uniform amongst them, right? Some guys didn't even have shoes. And I remember asking the commander, like, how much territory do you control around here? And he said, I control everything within 700 meters. And I said, that's a really specific number. What do you mean? And he goes, that's as far as my furthest weapon can shoot. Anything beyond that belongs to the Taliban. Mm. And his intelligence officer, this guy named Sadiq, um, comes up to me and he's like, listen, the, the Taliban around here roll around in cherry red motorcycles. You, uh, you see a bunch of guys in cherry red motorcycles. Those are Taliban and they're trying to mess with you. So we, we did our assessment. We realized these guys needed a lot of training and assistance, and it was going to be hard to even just get out to them because we were in a really bad area to begin with. Um, we left. And uh, we had learned the day before an important lesson, which is that whenever possible, don't take the same road back to your base. So the day before, we had to drive literally into a valley where it was one road in, one road out. And there was, you know, all you have to do is do a U-turn and Taliban just have to wait for you coming back to set up an ambush. This time we saw on the map that we could do a big circle and get back to like the main highway. So we, we started heading off on a route that no one had ever been on before. Not even the people that were doing our, our right seat, left seat rides, the people that we would be replacing who were trying to teach us about the environment we're in and, and sort of pass on their wisdom and knowledge gained through their deployment. None of us had ever, no one had been on this road. And what we learned later is that the, the maps and the satellite imagery we had were from 1984. So they were, I was two when they were made. Um, they were 24 years old and they were worthless. And long and short, we got lost and ended up stopping and asking this, this Afghan farmer for directions. And he basically pointed us right into a Taliban ambush. Um, they blew up our lead vehicle. This, we, we were the first unit in Afghanistan to be issued MRAPs. I remember that specifically being told we, you were the first unit to be given an MRAP in Afghanistan, and they're RPG proof. Like they, they can't penetrate the armor. And Matt, an, an MRAP is a, a mine resistant armored personnel vehicle. Is that what MRAP yeah, stands yeah. for? Yeah, it's a one point. So the one that we had is called an RG31. It's made by South, it's, it was made by DAA Systems. It was designed for use in the Angolan War. Uh, and they're specifically designed to survive roadside bombs. And this was you know, something you at IAVA have been pushing hard on to get Secretary of Defense Gates to put these things downrange because everyone was getting killed in Humvees, right? And thank God that that effort transpired because when my dudes rolled over a double-stacked anti-tank mine that had been set up as a pressure-plated IED, um, their vehicle was lifted up like a Coke can and thrown about 100 meters down the road. And when it landed, it didn't have an engine. And had they been in, we were told later by the engineers that had they been in, uh, in a Humvee, they would have all died because the the bottom of the floor would have just like pancaked them inside. Um, long story short, 
we were told that we had to guard this down vehicle until it was properly towed away. And we knew that at some point we were going to get attacked because we were just in the middle of a kill zone. We were in the middle of literally a farmer's field with no cover, no concealment on the outskirts of this village. And that's what happened about an hour into this. Um, I was, we had, we had basically put everybody in a, a, a perimeter around this blown up vehicle, um, a dismounted perimeter to the extent that we could, there were six of us, right? I mean, it's not a very effective perimeter, but it was a 15 person, you know, unit at the time we were rolling three vehicles deep, which in hindsight sounds crazy. Cause after this, most people went six vehicles minimum, but, um, what we were doing was every five to 10 minutes, we were rotating one person off of the perimeter to get in the back of my vehicle. Cause that way they could get air conditioning and, uh, just cool off. It was really hot rest for a minute. And then most importantly, grab a case of water and a can of, am- can of, am- a can of ammunition as a tongue twister yeah. and bring it back to uh, their foxhole. And this way they're, they're, they're getting the perimeter refortified. Long story short, it was my turn to take a break. I was in the back of the vehicle. I was going to literally just sit down and take my five minutes of AC. And our, our medic was playing patty cake with our interpreter, Fareed. Now, Fareed had just survived the IAD blast. He had been in that vehicle. It was the sixth one he had survived in life thus far. He hadn't been wearing his helmet. He hadn't been wearing his seatbelt. So he had a really bad concussion. And the medic was trying to keep him awake by playing patty cake with him because he was the only person who could talk to the villagers that we knew were near us to tell them to stay away, right? And if we ever took somebody like prisoner or a detainee, again, the only person who could speak, our eyes and our ears. So we had to keep him conscious. And as I got in the back of the vehicle, Fareed said, I have to go to the bathroom. And I looked at our medic, Scott, and I said, doc, you gotta go with him. And so as they got out of the back of the vehicle, I, uh, I realized that I was gonna be all alone by myself and that I didn't, I didn't wanna, you know, I didn't need the five minutes and I was just gonna get back to my foxhole. And so I turned around and said, Fareed, give me a cigarette. And I, as he was putting a cigarette in my mouth and lighting it for me, Doc raised his M4 up to look through his ACOG scope at this guy who was on a cherry red motorcycle on the top of a ridge looking at us with binoculars and a radio. And he's saying, hey, isn't it that guy? And the next thing I remember, I was on the ground and uh, it was the damnedest thing. Um, the... Uh, the dirt was, was jumping in front of me. And I, I couldn't, I couldn't make sense of it because no one had ever briefed me on Asian jumping dirt, but there it was dirt that could violate the fundamental laws of physics. It went up and down, up, down. I was mesmerized by this. And then I started to hear like sound come back. It sounded like firecrackers going off over my head. And that's when my brain kicked in and said, no dummy, it's not jumping dirt. Those are bullets hitting the dirt in front of you. You're getting shot at. And this, this kicked off, uh, what ended up, I ended up learning later was that they fired a rocket propelled grenade into my vehicle, which was very much not RPG proof. We didn't have any like the screens or anything later that they put on. It was just a, you know, a vehicle basically coming off the line at the factory. Went right through the armor, like hot knife through butter. Had I been sitting inside, taking my five minutes, it would have hit me in my right kidney and split me in half, killing me instantly. Uh, instead, I got thrown like forward and knocked on the ground. And then this firefight kicked off for the next hour. And uh, what I learned later from a drone operator is they told us that there was 50 of them versus like the 15 of us. And, uh, you know, they were using two mortar tubes because they were walking rounds in on us. So that guy on the motorcycle was what's called their forward observer for your audience is not familiar with it. It's literally the person who's watching where the artillery lands and then telling people who are shooting it, how to adjust it to hit us. And, uh, they bracketed us just like we would to somebody else and then walked it in on us. And it just, you know, I remember this round about an hour into this, this round landed about 10 meters or so for me, it sent me flying into a hole. Uh, and I remember when I came to consciousness, I, I was looking at my watch and it said it's 1650. So 450 in the afternoon. And I just thought I'm 26 years old and I'm going to die today. Cause that's it. Like that, the next one's going to land right on top of me. And I was out of grenades and I was starting to run low on bullets for my M4. And I was separated from everybody else at this point in the middle of this field. And, uh, and then someone, I just, I, I, I started praying and then I figured I was going to go out fighting. So I stood up back to start shooting again. And then someone yelled, Zeller, don't shoot to your six friendlies to your rear. And I turned and there are these three up armored Humvees 
driving like bats out of hell coming from the village. And the lead one gets up right next to me and the driver's side door flings open. And it's this guy named Mark Robertson, who's this sergeant from South Carolina who went, Hey, sir, I hear you're in a pickle. I brought a Mark 19 grenade launcher. Where do you want it? And you have to understand the people that showed up were all the guys from our unit who had been ordered not to come rescue us. And they defied it anyways. They said, no, fuck that. We're going to get our dudes. And most of the guys who showed up were all New York City kids who had joined because of 9-11. And this was like their first thing. And the guy rocking the Mark 19 was this, he's not a sergeant, but at the time he was a specialist, a guy named Felix Camacho, who just had this shitting and grin on his face as he charged the fucking handle back. And I pointed over the ridge line. I said, everything up there has got to go. And Robinson turns and goes, come on, Camacho, let's go hunting. <laughs> and, and they just, they, they drove off. And I will freely admit to losing my military bearing because I should have turned back to monitor my field of fire. Instead, I turned to watch the assault of the ridgeline. And in so doing, I missed the two dudes who rounded, the, there was this mosque near us that they rounded the corner. And I guess started running at me with their weapons drawn. So as this vehicle is driving away in the back seat is the interpreter who had volunteered to go on the rescue mission, this guy named Janice, who I had met 10 days prior in a receiving line. And all we had said to each other in life at this point was, hi, my name is so-and-so. I look forward to working with you. And then I went on the next person in line. So he's in the back of the vehicle and he's looking around trying to like assess the battle. And he sees me as they're driving away. And then he sees the two dudes running and he just pops the door open and jumps out, runs across the battlefield as they start to go up the hill and runs up to me and shoulder checks me. So from my perspective, it felt like getting checked in the boards in hockey or like someone knocking your ass in football. But at the same time he hit me, he also shot his AK-47. And in my brain, I went, well, that's it. I've just been hit. We don't have AK-47s. There's no armed Afghans on our side on the battlefield that I've seen. I, I must have just gotten shot. And I had landed back in the hole I had just climbed out of. And so I'm, I'm laying on my back and the wind's knocked out of me. And I'm looking up and there's this Afghan man standing over me. He's wearing these old U.S. Army jungle battle fatigues, right? BDUs. And he's got this ill-fitted Indian Army surplus body armor on it. It would barely have done anything if he got hit. And he's looking down at me and I'm looking up at him and I finally get you know enough air in my lungs. And I say, who the fuck are you? And he looks down at me and he puts his hand out. And he says, I'm Janice. I'm one of your translators. You're not safe. <laughs> it's the understatement of my life. And he pulls me up out of this hole. And as he does that, I look past him and that's where I see the bodies of the two guys that he just shot and killed saving my life. I don't get a chance to talk to him till the next morning. But when I do, I, I, I realize instantly that there are certain people that come into your life that you're just, you're supposed to know. Right. And that they, there's a life before them and a life after them. And he is, you know, not everybody gets to meet their guardian angel, but I did. And he's become my best friend and my brother. But at that moment, we didn't know each other. And that was what was so odd to me because I found him the next morning when we finally had a chance to actually sit down and talk, eating alone in our chow hall. And I, I asked him, you know, if I could eat with him. And he said, sure. And I sat down and I said, you know, you saved my life yesterday. I, I owe you a life debt. Do you understand that that means I'll do anything to repay this to include if if you need me to, I'll commandeer an aircraft to come get you at some point. Like, you know, like I, 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 I don't even, but I don't even know you, man. Like I didn't know his name. I didn't know anything about him. Like his, like nothing. I knew literally nothing about this guy that his name is Janice and he shot and killed two guys the day before. And I said, you know, why'd you do it? And he's like, well, you're a guest in my country. You know, I take the bullet before you do. It's like, oh, wow, you're, you're a real hell of a shot. I'm glad you're on our side. I was like, wait a minute. Why are you on our side? And he goes, well, you know nothing about Afghans. I was like, you're right. Will you teach me? He goes, okay. First lesson, I'm on our, your side because my mom would have kicked my ass if I joined the Taliban. I was like, wait a minute. That makes no... Are you telling me everybody on the other side of yesterday's battle had mom's permission to be there? He's like, yeah, if mom's still alive, absolutely. I go, well, I don't understand something. Why? He goes, well, it's simple. Afghan men can't do anything without the blessings of their mothers. And then he got really serious. He goes, that's why they burned down girls' schools. That's why the Taliban attacked the women, because they're afraid of an Afghanistan that's filled with moms like mine. Because if it's filled with moms like mine, you see, my mom can read. So she's read the Quran and she knows what they preach is bullshit. It's not Islam. And that's what they're afraid of is a generation of literate women who grow up and turn to their sons and say they aren't really Muslims. They're bad people. You can't join them because then their movement dies. 
that completely changed my whole thinking about how we were going to go about being mentors, like what, what we should be like focusing on in terms of like our long-term like goal. We set up a couple of high schools and elementary schools for women. That was probably the most like lasting, enduring thing. Like if you're looking back on now how, on how Afghanistan is collapsing and it seemingly looks like the last 20 years were like nothing. I mean, there's a great New York Times article. Um, um, Tim Gibbons Neff is over there and he, he went on this helicopter flight a couple of weeks ago down to Helmand with the Afghan army. And he's flying over like places where he lost friends and they built fobs and it's just all gone. It's like, he's like, it was like, we were never there. And I can't help but think that if there's one legacy that we've left behind in Afghanistan that will outlast us and is positive, it's we taught a lot of women how to read. And maybe that's the one sort of thing I have hope for if they can survive. But the long and short of all of this was I made Janice my personal interpreter for the, the rest of the year. And when I got home from Afghanistan, you know, I got to come back to safety. He went on to the next unit, the next mission. And he got in touch with me shortly after I got back in the States. And he said, look, the Taliban have a bounty on my head. They're hunting me. They're going to kill me because I, of what I've done for you and your country. There's this new visa program. It was just created you know, this year called the Special Immigration Visa Program. And it requires someone like you who has worked with me to nominate uh, me for the visa. Would you do that? And I said, sure. Thinking naively, it would take six months, maybe a year. Four years later, we were still waiting for his visa. And at this point, he was working on a big base in Kabul where I thought he was safe. But it turns out he's like, no, dude, there's a hit team that lives just outside of the front gate that's waiting for me. The day that he loses his job, right, because the base is closing, is the day that they can kill him because the privilege of being an interpreter, so long as you're employed, you get to live on the base that you work at, so you're guarded. Well, he found out in July of 2013 that that base was being handed over to the Afghans in October and that they weren't going to need the 400 plus interpreters who lived on the base to be there anymore. And so he's like, dude, you have till October to get me out of here. I'm a dead man. And so I, I had run for Congress in a previous part of my life and I knew some folks in the media and I knew some people in office and I just started cashing every chip that I had, trying to get somebody to pay attention in government to get this guy his visa and get him out of country before the inevitable happened, the unthinkable. And it ended up working. We built a national advocacy campaign. We realized that we were going to have to embarrass the government into doing the right thing. And it worked. And then the Taliban who read the US news saw that we had done it. And they called up the anonymous tip line at the embassy with a throwaway cell phone and said, he actually works for us. Click and the State Department revoked his visa. So then I had to call in from another previous life all the favors I had from being a, a spy at one point working for the CIA and get him polygraphed. He passed twice with flying colors and then they put him on the next plane in America. And he's been here ever since. But when he arrived in the United States, I learned firsthand how little we actually give in terms of assistance to these people. He was allowed to bring one bag per person. It had to be under 50 kilograms and fit in the overhead flight. It's like, Think about that for a second. I told you you were going to go to Antarctica for the rest of your life. Like, what would you pack? He, you know, they packed the family Quran and like pictures of like long dead relatives that weren't digitized and like, you know, the, the heirlooms that they're never going to sell. So he had nothing. And I was fortunate that because this had become a national media story at the airport, there were a couple of members of Congress and a CBS news crew, like filming the whole thing. And so I realized it was going to get more media attention. And so I started to go fund me page like then and there. I said, I told the correspondent, I, I, apparently it's on me to help him get resettled. I was going through a divorce at that point. I, did, I had a one bedroom apartment. Like I, I didn't have a place to put a family of four long-term. And so I was like, if I'm going to have to help him get resettled, I'm going to have to raise some money. So we were really fortunate. People saw the story, complete strangers donated $38,000 in just small increments, you know, $100 here, $200 there. And so three days later, I, I go to the bank account where we deposit all the money and I write him a check. He doesn't even know it yet. Like I haven't told him any of this. And I've set him up with this small, modest, you know, two bedroom apartment down the road from me. And I get to his apartment and you have to realize he arrived in, in America on October 29th, 2013. So this is now October 31st, important date. Because as I'm walking up, I realize I'm a bad friend because there's a line of children at his front door all in Halloween costume. And he's standing at the top and he's got a lot of $1 bills, all the money he's brought with him to America. And per kid, he's given each child $3. And he looks up at me and he goes, brother, you never told me you had so many beggars in America. 
but why are they dressed in such funny clothing and only asking for candy? Like they're not good beggars. They should be asking for cash. So I'm, I'm, I'm helping them out. And I'm like, Oh my God, it's Halloween. I haven't, I haven't told you what Halloween is. Yet. I was like, first lesson, you're out of candy for the night. Kids go home. And uh, he's like, we gave out a lot of money. I was like, don't worry about it. And I sat him down. I pull out the check and I said, brother, this isn't thanks in exchange for your eight years of frontline combat service with our country. I'm one of five Americans that can point to him and say that he's my guardian angel. There's four of us, four others, different units, different years of the war. None of us served together at all, but to a person we can point to him and say, no, at some point he killed someone to save me, to keep me here. He has now a check in front of him that would have paid for his first year's rent and food. And when I tried to give it to him, he refused it and said, what about Hassan and Maiwand and Latif and Jamshid and Habib? He was naming off all the other interpreters who at that point were still serving on our little outpost overseas. I said, what about them? He said, don't they deserve to be here too? I said, yeah, they do. What do you want to do with this? And he said, well, can we use this to start an organization to do with them, you know, do, do for them what you've done for me, help them get a visa and then, you know, I just, it was through like putting out the word through friends and family in the, the greater DC area, which is where we live, that he needed a bed and he needed a couch. Just people showed up. And I realized Americans want to help. You know, Mr. Rogers always says, look for the helpers. I mean, my goodness, it was, it was at this point having to turn people away. There were so many people wanted to help. And that was when the, uh, there was an aha moment where if we're going to do this for those five, then maybe we should do it for others as well. And this is a repeatable process. And so it Let started me hold you out- there, Matt. Let me hold you there, Matt. Yeah. Number one. Let's take a deep breath. <laughs> and I want to interrupt you because uh, you're sharing so much. And I feel really privileged and honored that you shared that story and the length and the detail and the emotion. Um, every hero, every superhero has an origin story. <laughs> That's the origin story. Of, of Matt Zeller and of Janice and of this organization. And I'm so glad you brought it back to look for the helpers because we say it on this show all the time and you embody that. And that's why I wanted to have you on right now because I know parts of this story. I've never heard that whole story. And whoever's listening right now probably pulled their car over or sat, stopped and sat down because I will never forget that story. Uh, anyone listening will never forget that story. And now it's our obligation to take it forward, to share it and to empower you and Janice and everyone else to repeat those stories. I mean, down to to the Halloween weirdness, right? Uh, I've talked at length about my interpreters and um, three of them. Uh, Muhammad Amamayas is in Nashville. Isam Pasha is in Connecticut. And Sid is somewhere in Iraq or dead. I don't know. Uh, and when uh, Mohammed first landed in the U.S., he was in Nashville uh, in a temporary housing project, basically. And he called me. Uh, I remember. I always remember when he called me. He said, "LT, uh, why does no one in America speak English?" And he said he he spoke English almost perfectly. Had been educated in Ireland, and he was in a housing project with people who spoke exclusively Spanish. And he was just baffled. Ended up in Tennessee. One of them came under an SIV visa. The other one came in the early days through a humanitarian religious organization. It was like roll the dice and what city are you going to end up in? But I, I I think that's part of how you and I first connected is in the early days of advocating for yeah. Iraqi interpreters. Um, and and telling these stories, and frankly, not thinking it would take this long to understand the moral imperative, the the urgency of these stories, and the strategic imperative. If we don't take care of these folks, not only is it, in my view, blood on our hands and a moral imperative, it's terrible for our national security. Because as you have so eloquently stated, if we don't stand up for Janice and Mohammed and Isam, they're not going to stand up for us in the future, and not just in in Afghanistan. And not, and not just in Iraq, it might be in the war against North Korea. It might be in a war against Russia. It might be in whatever comes down in the future for generations to come. So this is so important. But the human part of the story that you just shared is why I do this podcast, because you're on CNN and you're banging out interviews and ringing the bell in between Viagra commercials and MyPillow commercials, but you never get to unpack the magnitude of the story on a human level. And I'm grateful for it. Um, you know, 
I think, I think it was um, one of the Medal of Honor recipients, Bud Buka, told me that every time a Medal of Honor recipient tells a story, tells a story, it hurts. Because you have to kind of rip it out of your body and, and it damages your body along the way and it damages your mind, and your spirit. And I feel like that's what you just did. Sharing that story is painful and hard and courageous. And I want to thank you for it. Because if people listening to nothing else, they heard that and I hope they are forever changed. Now we sit here where there are, you paint the picture for me, 70,000 or so people like 88,000 people. Okay. So that's 20,000. So let's talk about break family. down. Be, be a, uh, you're interestingly, you're still in the army reserves IRR. So you're a major in, in the in brain the glass in case of world war three list. Right. So <laughs> if world war three happens, they can call you off active duty and send you back. Or I don't know if Biden loses and another president is elected and decides to go back into Afghanistan and activate the IRR. There is a, you know, a very remote scenario where you could end up going back into Afghanistan. Yeah. Right. Yep. And we as a country could end up going back into Afghanistan. But right now, Afghanistan is spiraling downward, as I predicted, as you predicted, as so many others did. The Taliban is rampaging across the country. But just start with, before we get to the national security military component, which I know is intertwined, paint the picture for people. How many people like Janice are left behind right now? And, and what, in your view, should we be doing about it? So right now, there are 20,000 individuals who have applied for something called the special immigration visa. These are mostly interpreters, but they're also people who served as engineers, aid workers, the, the people without whom we could not have accomplished what we have attempted to achieve over the last 20 years, right? They were absolutely essential to our effort and they have faced the most dangerous of threats for that service, not just an attempt on their lives, but their families' lives are all directly threatened. The Taliban have a very North Korean sensibility about punishment. They will kill uh, as many members of a family that they can get their hands on to try to show to others that this is the cost of American friendship. You should never partner with the U.S. or with anyone else who tries to come to Afghanistan without our explicit permission. So when you extrapolate that out, 20,000 applicants plus their spouses and children, it's about 88,000 people. So just short of about 90,000 folks. So there's an organization called the Association of Wartime Allies. And I'm, I'm privileged enough to be uh, on their board. Uh, they're run by an amazing force of nature by a woman by the name of Kim Stafiri, who they're all volunteers. And they're, they've never actually, I think, even had like an in-person meeting. They're all virtual, you know, collaborating around the world. But they assist and help these individuals with their visa applications. And so they have a very unique ability to pull that population. And what they learned is that half of them are currently outside of Kabul. And that's really important because for whatever reason, the Biden administration decided to wait until the absolute last moment, the 11th hour to conduct the evacuation of these individuals. If say even four months ago, we had the people and resources in place to basically anywhere in the country, gone and picked somebody up and brought them to an airfield and flown them out. But instead of doing that, for whatever reason, the Biden administration decided to withdraw 95% of the military personnel and equipment that we had in Afghanistan from the bases that we should have been using to evacuate these people. What remains now is a tiny footprint of soldiers, about six to 700 army soldiers and Marines who guard the embassy and the airport, the airport in Kabul, because that is the only place in the country that we are moving people to safety from. And what we have told that population is that you need to somehow get to Kabul to even qualify to get on this plane. Now, here's the problem. The Association of Wartime Allies pulled that population. What they found was that half of them, about 44,000, are outside of Kabul. And they have no means to get there. The Taliban controlled the roads in between Afghanistan cities. They have stolen the biometric database that we built, along with the equipment that you can use to access that database in the field. We had these special cameras called hide devices. And what they did was they took a picture of your iris, your thumbprint, right? Everything. And you can literally, you can set up a checkpoint. You could just, you know, somebody walks up, you take their picture. It's and like, it's like if you go through clear at the airport. 
Exactly. Yeah, Think of yeah, like a mobile yeah, clear, yeah, right? Yep. Yep. With the database is right there on the device. Well, they have that. And the problem is, is that they have the database that identifies if you used to work for us. And so they've erected these checkpoints in the city. So there's in between the cities. So there's really no way to drive in between the cities without they, it, it, CNN had a report a couple of weeks ago about a guy, an Afghan interpreter who was going from Kabul down to the city of coast to pick up his sister for a religious holiday. And he got stopped at a checkpoint and he was beheaded. How do they identify him? This device. So that leaves attempting to fly. The only city in Afghanistan right now that is flying civilians on regularly scheduled flights to Kabul is Masri Sharif. And they're completely surrounded by the Taliban on all sides now. Literally, as of yesterday, the Taliban encircled the city. So they, within the last 72 hours, the Taliban have taken eight provinces in Afghanistan. Um, they have launched major assaults on the largest cities, with the exception of Kabul. They've just launched a sustained, now month-long assault on the cities of Kandahar, Lashkargah, Herat. Uh, and they, they've begun an assault on the city of Mazar-e-Sharif, which is, as we are talking, ongoing right now. Simply put, that population of Afghans who are outside of Kabul just don't have the means to get there. And so the reality is this. The Afghan government can't defend them. The Afghan military is too busy losing to the Taliban to move them themselves. And that leaves it up to someone else to do it. So the only entity that I know of on the planet that has the, the, the equipment and the resources and the cash to pull this off in the speed that it would be needed would be the United States military, right? Uh, and, or, or some component of NATO. And yet it, there's clearly not the political will to do that. And let so me you, I, let me pause you there again, Matt, if I can, yeah, right? Sure. So we're yeah, going to have to take pit stops at some point because this is an intense race we're in and you're doing a brilliant job of, of painting the picture. But for the Afghans like Janice on the ground right now, it's basically the zombie apocalypse unfolding. Yep. And they're all running for the same watchtower while the sure. zombie apocalypse surrounds them and sweeps yep. them up and beheads them and firebombs their houses and kills their children. We don't even know how many are going to die today, right? But every day, I, we've used the hashtag, our friends are dying, right? So every day, people like Janice are dead. Every day we wait, more of them are dead. And that message cascades and the Taliban takes over more and more of the country. I and you and many others were, were outspoken about this from the moment that Biden announced we were out. It was months ago, four months ago, five months ago. He said, we're going to be out by September 11th. We figured the next announcement would be, and here's how we're going to get everybody out. Yep. They fucked this up in a way that is incomprehensible. Failure to plan is planning to fail. And, and now they've gotten 1,000 out, I think, yesterday, maybe 400 out last week. You know, an infinitesimal amount, of course, significant, but not close to the amount of people that we needed to get out. And this has been done before. And, and Tebe in, in Israel, we've done it before. You know, there, there is a logistical way to pull this off. The thing that we didn't have on that list that you mentioned was the will. So it seems like I mean, I'm putting this squarely on, on the feet of Joe Biden. I've been outspoken about my support for him on issues, but it is, I do not understand how and why they fucked this up so badly. And now they continue to drag their feet when really what you're saying is get them all out, line them up on planes. At least, you know, the 20,000 who have been iris scanned and we have their biometric data. You can get people out in plane load after plane load. You've got a great graphic that you tweet almost every day that that shows how we could do it. They came back and said, well, we have to figure out where to put them. They didn't plan for that either. You know, if they don't want to bring them to South Carolina or they don't want to bring them to Texas, I want to ask you about the Guam option, which we have uh, yep. I think, uh, agreed is, is a good option. But now they're talking about places like Kazakhstan with human rights violations and other places where they also won't be safe. So take them from one part of the zombie apocalypse and put them somewhere else where they might die from, from something else. But let me ask you this. Um, number one, let's just answer this question. Why did they fuck this up so badly? I mean, I, I know we can't get inside their heads, but is I, there some political element or financial element? Is it a failure to recognize that it was going to be this bad? Because I, well, the one thing I have been critical about, look, I don't think we should stay. OK, but we don't have to leave like this and you don't need a reinvasion to save these people. This is a logistical challenge. It doesn't have to be the reinvasion of the 82nd Airborne. Right. We, we could have pulled this off before and every day we wait, it gets harder. But why? Why is this happening? 
Matt? So, you know, at the end of a war, there's two questions that loom large, right? The first is, was it worth it? And the second is, how do you end it? History gets to answer the first one. We don't. But we get to answer the latter. And right now, how we're ending it is with profound shame. Um, it seems to be that there are two camps within this White House. So when you talk about a plan, you know, I was taught as an army, young army, I was enlisted first. I was private all the way up to sergeant. And I was taught as a young enlisted soldier that if I identified a problem, I was never to also come without that problem. Also having a solution, you know, being suggested, right? If you're going to bitch about something, at least have a way to try to resolve it, right? Okay. So October of last year, Kim Stafiri calls me up and she says, it doesn't matter who wins the election. We're out of Afghanistan and we need to start moving these people now. I said, you're right. I go, what do you propose? She goes, we got to, we got to, we got to sound the alarm bells. I said, well, in DC, that's done with white papers. You, you write a paper, you get it to the right people. You try to communicate that way. So we sat down and we wrote this over the winter. We gave it to the Biden administration in January. We sent it to them. People like Jake Sullivan, you know, sent it right to their email addresses, knowing that they received it. And we heard nothing. And I figured, okay, they're the busiest people in the world. They've got a trillion fires that they've inherited from the Trump dumpster, you know, administration. They clearly are, maybe this just got lost in the shuffle. I'll put it back on the top of their inbox. Nothing. Okay, well, maybe we didn't go big enough because it was just a private white paper. Maybe we need to put some institutions on it. The size of the Association of Wartime Allies. So we reached out to you know people like the International Refugee Assistance Project, the Truman Project, Human Rights First, Veterans for American Ideals, IAVA. Right? We said, hey, let's let's get together. Let's put a little coalition together. Let's do a joint communication. Put out a little bit of publication. Put some spotlight on this. Great. We in that report specifically sounded the alarm and say, you know what? You got to get them out now. Just as you said, we have to identify a place to put them. Let's bring them to Guam. We've done it in the past. We did it in 1975 with 130,000 Vietnamese. We did it in 1996 with 6,000 Kurdish allies. Let, let's do it now. And nothing. Radio silence. So then we really escalated. We went more and more in the media. And this is when we finally started to hear just leaks. This administration seems to communicate through leaks and press releases. And what we were hearing from the leaks was that there were two camps within the White House. The national security camp wanted to do this and understood the, the cost if we don't, right? They understood it's their personnel that bears the brunt of this in the future, right? And it's not just, by the way, soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines, and um, guardians, whatever we're calling them these days. Um, uh, it's also diplomats, Peace Corps workers, even, even tourists, right? Like This is how America projects itself to the world. And unlike Vietnam, by the way, the Taliban have one of these, right? Everyone has a phone now and they can broadcast what's going to happen to our allies after we abandon them. That's the one thing about Vietnam that people don't seem to realize is we're not haunted by that footage. We know of it because we, we carry a cultural memory through the Vietnam veterans who are burdened with that moral injury and have been for the last half century. But we aren't confronted with its visual narrative, which like we're going to be through this one. There are going to be videos that follow us forever of these people's executions and their mass murders. And so what we've learned is that while the national security camp gets this, unfortunately, there's a political camp. And that political camp, which has, seems to have the president's ear, doesn't seem one failed to realize that Afghanistan was going to collapse this quickly. Really, truly believed, too, that the visa program was sufficient enough to save them, despite all of the problems we identified inherent therein. And three, and this is, Paul, this is the one that really grinds my gears. They seem to care more the fuck about the optics of a chaotic evacuation than the optics of mass murder. And so they're more concerned about their Saigon and 75 helicopter off of the roof of the embassy photo than doing the right thing. And here's what they don't fucking understand. Nobody ever talks about this. Nobody ever talks about where that helicopter went. It didn't fly to an airport. By that point, the North Vietnamese had blown up the airport. It was not usable. It flew to an aircraft carrier mm -hmm. because we got lucky in Vietnam and that we had a bunch of boats to work with with an ocean. Most of the people that we evacuated in the last week of South Vietnam's existence out of Saigon came out of the harbor on ships. We don't have that luxury in Afghanistan. And so what I fear is I've heard that the embassy is going to be closed at the end of the month. The Turkish 
embassy closed yesterday. It's literally next door to the Afghan presidential palace. I'm not sure there's other than our embassy and the British embassy, there might not be a more secure embassy in Afghanistan. And the Turkish felt so insecure that they have to close and leave. And by the way, their military currently guards the airport in Kabul. Mm. And they said that when we go, they go. Once there's no more international presence guarding that airport, international flights aren't going to fly there, which means even if you have a visa, it'll be worthless. So again, unless we take these people with us as we leave, they're going to die. And I let me, pause you. Let me pause you there again, man. Another, another pit stop. You're, thank you for deconstructing this and for doing it with precision and passion. So um, what is unfolding is, is that moment where that, you know, the helicopter, the plane takes off and the zombies kind of overtake that last person with their hand up in the air. But your point about that visual being uh, worse politically than the visual of beheadings and, and, and cell phone videos coming out of Afghanistan that you're sharing on Twitter, I'm sharing on Twitter, we're sharing to try to get people out there is, is, is really important because I think it's just, it's an abdication of leadership. It's a failure. I, the why doesn't even matter to me as much as the what, the fact that it is happening and this is going to be a stain on all of us and especially on President Biden who should get this and should understand this. And, and the, the challenge that I've had lately is how they paint this rosy picture and you can see uh, Admiral Kirby, who I know is a friend and before he went back into the Pentagon, worked at CNN with me, you know, he's saying, well, the Afghan army's got to stand up. The Afghan army's this is their fight now. That's bullshit. I mean, and, and we all know it. Like, we know they're going to fail. You can't watch a kid get pummeled by a bully and say, hey, you know, the kid's supposed to fend for himself. You have an obligation to help that kid and and, and to not let him get pummeled. So now we've got worse than a Taliban overrun. You've got a humanitarian disaster on your hands. And it's going to be even worse. So I guess the, the thing I want to go back to is you were back channeling me, full disclosure, right, about a lot of this. And I told you the Guam option is specific. We got to put it out there, give people the history. And you've been running that to ground, too. You got the governor of Guam or others got the governor of Guam to say, bring them. We yep. want them. Yep. Guam's they an incredibly patriotic place. There's an economic incentive, right? There's a history there and a cultural understanding, and it could be a good thing for our country. And I painted this quick. picture. It's one flight. It's a four-hour flight from Afghanistan. Instead of trying to fly them all the way here, right. which we're doing right now, it's right. literally one four-hour round trip, you know, like four hours each way. Well, I tried to paint a picture for people because you have to take the long view on all of this. There was a a child of Sudanese refugees uh, named Mu who run, a, run an Olympic gold medal. A couple of weeks ago, right, and and her her children, her family escaped um, from South Sudan. You know when there was a, a genocide basically happening there, and now you know fast forward twenty years later, she wins an Olympic gold medal. Like there, there are there are Afghan children yet to be born that can one day serve in the military, serve in Congress, win Olympic gold medals, maybe cure that cancer. Are, like that's yeah. the thing I tell Janice right? all the time. You have no yeah. idea the mitzvah that you've done. Yeah. So we're we're in heat, we're we're in heated agreement here. And now they brought a, a, a crew of like 400 to Fort Lee. They brought a thousand in last night. They're bringing them in in the cover of night, right? It's kind of this, 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 I mean, they should be coming home to ticker tape parades in my view. But again, the political issue is there. And you see the White House continuing to really downplay. Like Biden should be there welcoming them, right? The Secretary of Defense could be there welcoming them. But there's this political through line now where, it's becoming overly politicized and Biden's getting swept up in it. Same thing with the vaccine. He should have mandated the vaccine in the military months yep. ago, but he didn't want the political flack. So he kind of hedged and he refused to bite the bullet. And this is where the rubber meets the road for me, for a commander in chief, the national security decisions, the hard decisions where you take political flack, but you do the right thing and they're not doing the right thing. So let's take this all the way out to its conclusion, Matt. The Taliban will take over the country fully, including Kabul in the next 30 days. That's what the government. So I said, uh, on, I looked back on Twitter because I, I wanted to make sure I, I, I kept the record of it. On July the 6th, I posted the Afghan collapse and Taliban conquest is going so quickly that Kabul may fall within weeks. And I stand by that. I don't think they last through the year, through the end of the year. I, I 30 days, you know, it's really going to come down to this. They're fighting a war of attrition. So two weeks ago, a really key event happened. The Taliban took the border crossing between Afghanistan and Pakistan at Spin Boldak. And now that they have that, they basically have an unfettered means of being able to throw fighters and equipment into the country. And they got they basically had a reserve army waiting in the tribal areas. Right. They're also 
their strategy is simple. They want to outbleed the Afghan military. They get they're going to lose people, but so are the Afghans. And the Afghans are losing their most important soldiers, the commandos and their pilots. And once those people are gone, that's it. They can't defend Kabul and they know it. So they're tritting them down everywhere else in the country right now. And if if they lose like places in like Mazari Sharif or Lashkargah and those cities start falling, it's only a matter of time before the rest of the dominoes come and the zombies sweep over Kabul. Right. And so the Taliban, the Taliban will get service to air missiles from Iran, Russia. They've already bought them. They've They've already already got them. Right. And so they'll shoot down whatever air superiority the Afghan army has that's supported by us. And if they don't, as you said, they'll kill pilots on the ground. They've already started. They literally started an assassination campaign in Kabul over the weekend. They killed two of the helicopter pilots. There's not many left. Like Jack McCain has been posting about it on Twitter because he trained a bunch of these guys. And he was saying something like out of the 32 graduates of this one class, seven are alive left now. I mean, it's just nuts. You can't sustain that type of losses. So so what we're going to see unfold is a different kind of of uh, catastrophe that I want to underscore for all the people who say, hey, you know, we had to get out of Afghanistan. This was going to happen anyway. We didn't have to get out like this. If this wasn't going to happen, it anyway. could have saved these people. Like we it could have saved-, saved these people and we still can save more. So I know that you and I and anyone listening now, I hope will keep the pedal down, you know, no matter how fast this this unravels. In the meantime, let me ask you a really pointed question. Everybody should follow you on Twitter and support all the organizations that you're a part of and follow you in the media and continue to track on this issue. But uh, what can people do right now? We always say stay vigilant. Um, you know, they can obviously support the the wartime allies coalition that you've created. Um, they can donate money. Um, and are there also Afghan families that are resettling here that, that, that need help? Can you break that down a little bit? If I'm living in Kansas city or Miami and Texas, and I want to help, what can I do? I literally, so my podcast for wartime allies, I just before getting on with you, I interviewed a guy, uh, one of the, the first evacuee that we've actually been able to interview. One of the, he got here 72 hours ago. He's already in Dallas, Texas, um, where he's starting his new life. Uh, and, um, it's just, you know, you can see the relief on his face. It was palpable. Um, so there's 20 cities around the country that have been identified as resettlement sites. There are organizations like the international rescue committee, Lutheran Immigration and Refugee Services, Catholic Charities, HIAS, um, and No One Left Behind. These organizations are involved in actually helping these people now transition to their new lives in America. That's If people want to help, that's where you can be of best service. And I think also, quite frankly, where you're going to get the most value out of it. So you could donate money money and whatnot. But what I would recommend is I always ask people to try to become somebody's first friend. And the idea is, you know, if you can call up one of the local refugee resettlement organizations in your community and just say, if you have any Afghans coming to the area, offer yourself as someone who would like to serve as a mentor and uh, just somebody who can answer the basic life questions. I mean, these are people who have never used credit cards. They've never seen an escalator, right? They, they don't understand most of our 21st century culture that we've grown up with. They're not going to understand social security numbers or how to apply for jobs online. And so all of those like, life questions. They just need someone to call up. If you, if you offer yourself to be that person, I guarantee you as much as you think you're going to be helping them, they're going to help you in kind equally. And you're going to gain not just a friend, but potentially a family member. These will be people that will be at your Thanksgiving dinner table. Yep. They were at my wedding and, um, and, and, uh, they'll be at my funeral. Right. And, um, you have saved more than we'll ever know. You're going to save more than we'll ever know. It'll, it will, you, you and I know that we will we'll never feel like we saved enough. Yep. Um, but in war, my friend Todd Bowers had a great line when, when he said, you know, when I came back, everybody used to always ask me how many people I killed. They never asked me how many people I saved. And, and it, it's, it's now clear how many you're saving. And I hope people who are listening can help us save more. This is happening right now. This is why I like, look, I, I know it's August. People are on vacation. Everybody wants to disconnect. Um, that, that's part of the reason why this is happening is because people aren't paying attention. They're not staying vigilant. It shouldn't be, be partisan. This is where the rubber meets the road. This is gut check time for America. And you can do something today to help. And Matt Zeller, you're doing something every day to help. I, I know you're a fan of this show. So I'm going to ask you if you can stick around 
and we'll do a special uh, a car question, drink, happy, angry for my Patreon subscribers, which I got to give a big shout out to. They've helped us power through this entire summer. Uh, we'll, we'll have that extra content for Patreon members and we'll have some video of this and resources at independentamericans.us. Um, let, me, let me ask you one last thing, man. Um, what, what do you want people to think about? When they, when, they, when they process this interview and they go to bed tonight, you've given them a ton to think about. Um, but you're one guy who's shown what it means to be a helper. You know, your, your family and, and this country is very proud of you. So I want to thank you for that because I know it's fucking hard. You said you're fine. But I know when you hang up this, this call, you're going to take texts from people who say, Mr. Zeller, I'm in Afghanistan. Save me. I'm getting them. I'm getting them on Twitter DM because I know you. And it's a, it's a huge burden. So I want to thank you for taking that on for all of us, but also ask you, you know, what's the thing you can't say when you're on CNN that you want to say here? We have. I don't know how I'm going to forgive my country for not having the courage and conviction to do the right thing. And that is something that I was warned about by a Vietnam veteran by the name of Jan Scruggs, who built the Vietnam Veteran Memorial Wall. You know, when no one left behind first got started, Jan offered to help me and had me over to his house. And when I walked in, he walked me into his office and he pulled out a photo of him as a much younger man. And standing next to him in that photo was his Vietnamese interpreter. And he said, I've spent the last half century wondering what in the fuck happened to this guy. He goes, you and your brothers and sisters don't need that fucking moral injury. It's bullshit. That's why I'm going to help you. We can't do this shit again. I'm haunted by the idea that there's a bunch of our brothers and sisters who are now going to be in a lot of pain because the other calls that I'm getting are from folks that we served with. Maybe that we didn't even know, but they served alongside us, right? In this effort. And they're saying, Hey, I'm trying to do from my interpreter, what you've done for yours. What can I do now? And the reality is not much. Tell them to get out by ever, ever means they possibly can. So when people go to bed tonight, I just, I, you know, listen to this. I just asked them to think about this where you place in the birth lottery doesn't matter. It's what you do with your life that counts. And these people have done so much for our country. We should be doing everything to try to save them. Thank you, brother. Thank you for your leadership and, and your example. Um, and I want you to know, and I want folks to know, pressure matters. The Biden administration is responding because they're feeling the pressure. So keep it up. Keep the pedal down in whatever way you can. Call the White House, tweet, you know, share media clips, donate money. Together, we are moving the needle. And every day there can be another plane load of Janices who have a new life. So this is, this is where the rubber meets the road. And, and Matt Zeller, you're a true hero, my friend. Thank you for all that you do. Thank you for staying vigilant for all of us and giving us hope. Uh, in, in tough times, um, you're going to continue to do great things and change and save lives. And we've got your back right now. So thank you for all you do, my brother. We're going to track and keep sharing the word. Thank you, brother. And thanks for all you've done. You know, I, I, people don't know how supportive you've been. So I'm just going to give you a quick shout out before we go. Paul, without Paul, none of this gets done. Like Paul has been just so influential behind the scenes and making sure that we get the proper media coverage that people with the ability to actually give this issue gave it spotlight and attention and cared about it. And so Paul, without you, none of this happens. So brother, I, I thank you for lighting the torch for so many to see when no one was paying attention. Well, one team, one fight. If I'm going to be a real friend to you, I'm going to end this so you can get to the Dodger game that you want to go to. <laughs> so thank you, my friends. Stick around for a Patreon exclusive. Um, but our friends, uh, this, is, this is the amazing Matt Zeller. Stay vigilant, Matt. Thank you. Thanks, brother. My deepest thanks to our friend Matt Zeller. He is a true American hero. Follow him on social media and find out more information and find video of this conversation at independentamericans.us. And please be sure to share it. And if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe and get your friends to subscribe and join our movement. We're going to continue to bring light to contrast the heat and bring you a steady dose of the righteous five eyes. Independence integrity, information, inspiration, and impact. My deepest thanks to Matt Zeller for his continued leadership. My thanks to Chris Rosenthal and Bill Schultz on the Righteous Media team. My thanks to our Patreon members who continue to power this work. And if you're not already a Patreon member, join us at independentamericans.us. You can find out more information on how to join and you will get exclusive content, including a few extra questions with Matt Zeller. 
We haven't forgotten about the drink question, the car question, or what makes you happy. So if you're new here, know that there are some important questions that we ask of every guest. And I didn't forget. Patreon members, you exclusively will get an answer from Matt Zeller on the car question, the drink question, the happy question, and some more. So please check us out on Patreon and support us however you can. And a massive, huge, fantastic, stupendous, happy sixth birthday to my amazing, inspiring, hilarious son, Ryder. Happy birthday, buddy. Yes, it's August, so be sure to enjoy these final days of summer. But also, help us keep this movement growing week by week by week. And stay vigilant, because eternal vigilance is still the price of freedom. Spread that vigilance and pass the hope, and know that you're not alone in your vigilance. We're all vigilant, and we're all in this together. From the hills of Afghanistan, to the halls of Congress, to wherever you are right now. I'm your host, Paul Rykoff. Thanks for listening. Stay vigilant, America. America.